Good morning. Let's join together in prayer. Father, thank you for the ability to come together and sing praises to you. It's just so good to be reminded through song of of your attributes, of your care for us, and to be able to carry those songs with us into the week as we seek to serve you with grateful hearts. We're grateful as well, Father, for your word, how it speaks so clearly and freshly and relevantly to us. I pray that you would speak through your word here today, give us listening hearts, receptive to what your word has to say to us. And I pray that your word would allow us to to live in such a way that we bring glory to your name in this coming week. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I attended a meeting yesterday of your pastoral search team. I have been attending those meetings uh, and trying to offer what help I can along the way. They are uh, working diligently on your behalf. They are praying and trusting God, working a good process, and uh, looking to God for his leading. I found a great article I thought I might share with them uh, that describes the perfect pastor and how to get him. But I thought I'd screen it through you first. So you let me know if I should share this with the search team or not, okay? So here it is. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. He makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. He is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. He always has time for the church board and all committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always in the next church over. (laughs) Here's how to get him. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle your pastor up and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors, and one of them should be perfect. What do you think, should I share this with the search team? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. All I ask is that you leave a few air holes in the box, okay? So the passage that we are looking at this morning talks about dealing with elders in the church and we find in the passage that some of them are actually paid staff. Did you realize that in the first century church? Some of them are paid staff. We're looking at a really interesting time in the development of the early church. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, structures of the church were just emerging. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that structure always needs to follow function. Structure follows function. 
in the church. Any number of structures can work. I've been in all sorts of churches. I've seen all sorts of structures. They can all work if the people in there are committed to the mission of the church. It is the function that matters most, not the structure. Structure follows function. The trellis is there to support the vine. The organizational structure is there to support the mission of the church. And so when we look at the early church in Acts chapter six, we see the development of the structure of the diaconate beginning to emerge. Deacons are appointed in Acts chapter six. You remember the the issue was the care of the widows. Uh, The Hebraic widows were, were getting taken care of pretty well, the Greek widows were not. And the apostles were torn over this, and they said, look, appoint seven men who are known to be godly, of good character, and let them care for that matter. Let them care for these physical needs so that we can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So the structure of deacons begins to emerge. And then by the time we get to Philippians chapter one, we see the apostle Paul greeting uh, the saints in Philippi together with their Elders elders are overseers and deacons. And so the office of elder has emerged along with the office of deacon. Both of those are there by the time we get to Philippians chapter one. And then just a very few years later, we get to 1 Timothy where we see some are being paid so that they can focus their time and effort on the ministry of the word. We're gonna look at some of that this morning. To the degree to which an elder might give up income in order to help lead the church, he would be compensated financially. He gives some of his work hours to the church and so the church takes care of his needs. Sometimes we develop staff positions like that these days in the church. Uh, All of your ministry team coordinators, for instance, are unpaid staff of River Hills Church. They're staff, they're just unpaid staff. If one of those ministries really took off and got to the point where volunteer effort couldn't uh, take care of it anymore, we might add a part-time position to the payroll so that that person would have the time to, to meet the need in the church and also be able to make ends meet at home. And if that ministry were to continue to grow, we could add more hours and it might eventually become a full-time role in the church. Churches do that all the time. And so some in the church, even in Timothy's day, were paid to lead the church. And often, it would be those whose ministry centered around the word of God, as verse 17 will tell us. So in this passage, we're going to be uh, seeing Paul speaking of elders who are leading the church well. Did you catch those words? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the ESV says rule well, NIV says those who direct the affairs of the church well. The Christian Standard Bible says elders who are good leaders, they are the ones who are worthy of double honor. We'll unpack that in a moment. John Maxwell may not be much of a theologian, but he has said one thing that is spot on. He said leadership is influence. 
I think that's one of the most succinct and accurate definitions of leadership I have seen. Leadership is influence, and elders are charged to be influencers in the church. When Paul speaks of elders who rule well in verse 17, the word he's using suggests someone who influences others to follow. So leadership is influence, and elders are to be influencers. And as we're all aware, influence can be used for great good or great harm to the body. So in this section, Paul will be giving us some guidance for how to treat elders, those who use their influence for good, as well as those who use their influence for harm. The structure of the church at this point here in 1 Timothy is such that some elders are being paid for their church duties because those duties are keeping them from part of the income uh, generating that they could be doing in order to make ends meet. So Paul wants to make sure they are well taken care of, just like he was concerned that the widows in the church are well taken care of in the passage we looked at last week. He uses the same word. If you look at verse three, you'll see he says, honor widows who are truly widows. And here in uh, verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Same word. And so um, the matter is one of taking care of their needs. With regard to elders, Paul says those who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And we'll look in a moment at what that means. But let's look at what Paul says overall about how to treat elders here in verses 17 through 20. Let's uh, refresh our, our thinking about 17 through 20 and read it again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear." how to treat elders. Paul gives us three specifics here, summed up in three words, and the first of those words is respect. We see that showing up in verses 17 and 18, where he speaks at first about giving these elders double honor. So elders, good news, we're gonna double your pay. Is that good news? Two times zero is still zero, right? So what is double honor? All elders are to receive honor in terms of respect, and that's emphasized in a number of places in the New Testament, but some are to receive double honor, and that is respect and remuneration, uh, compensation, pay. Uh, so how do we know that? Well, we know that because Paul goes on in verse 18 to quote two scripture references that support that and make it clear. The first is Deuteronomy 25, verse four, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, even an ox deserves to chew on the grain it's grinding as it works. And then he also quotes Luke 10, 7, the words of Jesus as he sends out the 12. And he says the laborer deserves his wages. So the 12 that he's sending out are to be taken care of in the places where they go. They're to receive food and lodging as they serve the Lord Jesus in those places. So, 
through those two passages, we see that Paul is pointing to taking care of the physical needs of those who rule well. Let's digress for just a moment. Little sidebar here. Did you notice in verse 18 what Paul calls these quotes? You see it? Verse 18? What's the word? Scripture. Scripture. Isn't that great? Luke's gospel is called Scripture at this point. Luke's gospel was in circulation at the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, and it was already recognized as God's word. It's already recognized as scripture, held in the same regard as Moses and the prophets. Isn't that great? Luke's gospel on par with Deuteronomy. I think that's just a wonderful little little note there. So, double honor, respect and remuneration. So here's the question, how well are we doing at that in the 21st century? I think we probably do the remuneration part better in our time than we have in past times. Uh, Clergy discounts are a bit rare these days, but I do remember them from long, long ago because clergy wasn't paid very well back then. I think we've caught up a bit in that regard. But what about the respect side of the honor coin? We're living in a time when it's tough to be a leader in any field. I've got friends who are teachers. I don't know how they do it. What they have to do in their classrooms uh, in order to uh, have discipline in the classrooms and all of that, I am just amazed at what is being put on their shoulders these days. It's tough to be in that leadership role. It is tough for for people who are bosses. Uh, I think of the challenges they face in finding and keeping good workers. Tough to be a leader in the business world. Tough to be a leader in in police work as well. Uh, Their authority is being challenged all the time. And it's tough being a leader in the church also. We're living in an age where the prevailing attitude isn't submission to authority, but questioning authority. We've all probably seen the bumper stickers, question authority. Authority figures at all levels are not only being questioned, they're being resisted, they're being maligned. And scripture tells us to respect authority, to submit to authority. And Paul says in Romans twelve seven, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Prevailing attitude isn't that way these days. But we're also living in an age where we've seen great abuses of power in office. I have been terribly disappointed by some high-profile Christian leaders who have let us down. I'm sure you can think of some. How do you make sure you're honoring the ones worthy of honor and dealing with the ones who aren't? Verses 19 and 20 tell us. Verse 19 introduces us to the next word of the three that Paul gives us for dealing with leaders, and that word is protect. Protect. Protect leaders from false accusations. We've seen that church leadership depends on character. 
That's the heart of the qualifications that we looked at in chapter three. Church leaders are only one good accusation away from being discredited. Because of that, I take some precautions in my own ministry that others might think would be a bit extreme. For instance, I don't counsel women alone in the building. I don't ride in a car alone with a woman. I don't meet a woman at a restaurant alone. When I was district superintendent, I stayed in homes rather than alone in hotel rooms just for the accountability of that. But even when church leaders are taking precautions, they're still subject to accusations that can really undermine their ministry. I've worked with enough churches to know that not everyone is willing to give a pastor or an elder the benefit of the doubt. One person speaks, and the effective ministry of that leader can be over, even without proof. All it takes is accusation and innuendo. Protection then comes in the form of requiring two or three witnesses in order to consider an accusation against an elder. Don't listen to gossip about leaders, even serious accusation, if there is no corroboration. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Flip over there if you can. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Here's what it says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Who's that for? That's for, for everybody, right? Anybody who is accused. And so, I think Deuteronomy 19.15 shows that the protection that Paul is talking about here for elders of having two or three witnesses for a pastor or a church leader to be charged is no more and no less than what anyone else ought to have. Church leaders get a lot of criticism and sometimes they get charged with wrongdoing. When that happens, there should be two or three people to make that charge. And if not, the charge doesn't stand. But if there is that kind of corroboration, then there needs to be corrective action. And that leads to the final word of the three regarding elders that Paul gives us, respect, protect, and the third is correct, verse 20. Verse 20 calls for public rebuke of those who persist in sin. I think the ESV translates it very well, persist in sin. This isn't a one-time slip-up. This is a character issue. Uh, it is not just an active verb that Paul is using here. It's a participle. He's speaking of the sinning ones, not just describing something someone does, but more that something that has become part of the character of an individual. It's a character flaw. And if there's one thing that we have seen Paul trying to drive home to Timothy, it's that character is vitally important to a leader. 
When a pastor or church leader is properly accused and continues in sin, it needs to be dealt with publicly. Remember the scandals a few years ago regarding Roman Catholic priests? Remember what happened with them? It was part of what made it so scandalous. They were privately rebuked and quietly put into another parish where often they repeated the same offenses they had done before. If it had been handled biblically, they would have been publicly rebuked and set on a path toward accountable restoration rather than simply being allowed to go on in secret and repeat their offenses again. So, how to treat elders, respect, protect, correct. Now, let's get a look uh, at the bigger picture that verses 21 to 25 give us regarding guarding the leadership gate, verses 21 to 25. Let's take a look at those together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Guarding the leadership gate. Paul makes a really strong statement in verse 21. Do you notice who he calls as witnesses to this charge he is giving Timothy? You see that in verse 21? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you. That's a heavy duty lineup there. Uh, why? It's because this is such an important issue. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. Maybe Paul has a specific case in mind in Ephesus, maybe not. But whether he does or not, Paul wants to make sure that things are dealt with consistently for the sake of the office of elder or overseer. Not for the sake of any individual, for the sake of the office of elder, that, it's, that it would be held in high regard. Um, so no special treatment for any individual based on our liking or disliking that leader or who that leader is related to or connected to in the church. Now, I want to dig into 21 to 25, but before we do, we've got to ask, what is verse 23 doing in the middle of it? You see that? Um, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Does that just kind of seem random to you? It just so How did that get there? What is this doing in the middle of this paragraph? It seems out of place, almost makes this section look like a set of random thoughts Paul wanted to be sure to include. But as we look at it, I think we're going to see that verse 23 actually might provide the key to understanding this paragraph. The paragraph is talking about what qualifies or disqualifies a man from being an elder. And you'll remember 
that in chapter three, Paul encourages great care in the appointing of elders and deacons with regard to the consumption of alcohol, particularly wine. And we saw when we looked at chapter three that a leader needs to be someone who shows moderation in a lot of areas, and the enjoyment of wine is one of those areas. Moderation. Paul doesn't say that they need to totally abstain from wine. Instead, he says elders need to be people who are not drunkards. I believe I used the word winos in my message that time. They, they need to be not drunkards. Literally, they don't stand beside the wine. You picture this great big container of wine and they're kind of standing near it. And deacons need to be people who aren't addicted to much wine. Literally, don't turn to the wine. Two different words, but both of them imply overdoing it. What Paul is saying here is elders and deacons don't overdo it. They're moderate. They've learned how to control themselves. Now, Paul knows that Timothy has some stomach issues, and he's going to suggest that Timothy use a little wine for his stomach. And the word he uses here is different from what we might expect. We might expect him to use the Greek word for drink. They have a word for that. Instead, he uses the Greek word for use. He says, use a little wine for your stomach. It's making clear that he's referring to a medicinal use of wine here. He's encouraging Timothy to use some wine for the sake of his stomach. Now, hang with me here. In chapter four, we introduced a word on the screen, asceticism. And asceticism is the severe discipline of the body and avoidance of any type of indulgence. It's kind of punishing this body that we're stuck in until we're liberated at death from this body. It was a popular idea in the Greek and particularly the Gnostic world, asceticism. So we saw in chapter four people, elders in the church at that time, were forbidding people to marry or to eat certain types of food. Remember that? That was this ascetic bent in the church there in Ephesus. Now, Timothy may well have been caving in to the ascetics in terms of not drinking wine. Their argument would have been something like this. Timothy, if you drink wine at all, you are clearly not qualified to be a leader here in this church. That would have been the ascetics' argument. And Paul's saying Timothy using some wine has nothing to do with his being qualified to be a leader or not. Timothy had a delicate constitution. Water wasn't always pure in that part of the world. Still isn't. And sometimes people would mix some wine in to purify it, much like we would uh, drop a, a water purification tablet into our canteen on a camping trip, right? Except those tablets hadn't been invented yet, but they did have wine. And so Paul says, go ahead and do that. Mix it in. It has nothing to do with your qualifications to be a leader. So I think verse 23 actually fits in pretty well in this context of what qualifies or disqualifies a person to be a leader. Let's look at this section that, that deals one more time with that topic. Paul gives us two directives in verses 21 to 25. The first one is in verse 21. It's no partiality. 
No partiality. No one gets a pass in terms of the qualifications of a leader that were spelled out in chapter three. No partiality. There's no way into office other than the tough road of proven character. You, you may have heard of a term, I'll throw it out here. Have you heard of a thing called simony? Simony, ooh, I'm seeing some, some, maybe not, okay. Simony was named after Simon the Magician of Acts chapter eight fame. Remember, Simon the Magician tried to purchase the power to, uh, to confer the Holy Spirit on people. He had witnessed the Spirit coming on people. He goes, ooh, I want to buy that. You know, show me how I can add that to my bag of tricks. And Peter just lets him have it. And so uh, this idea of trying to buy church offices or spiritual gifts has been called simony. And uh, it has led to people trying to buy church positions, pastoral roles, bishoprics. It was a huge problem in the 9th and 10th centuries, and it still shows up today in some places, particularly in places where being in a church role gives you great privilege. It was going on in the state church in Scandinavia when the free church movement split off from that. That's why the state church is called the state church. It, it, um, it, it's run by the state. Pastors are appointed by the state. And the free church movement gained its name by being apart from the state church. We're free from governmental control. They don't appoint our leaders for us. But in the state church, landing a good pastorate was a great thing. And if you could buy into that, you could end up with a really cushy job with, with uh, limited hours and great pay. And so that was going on in the state church in Scandinavia when the free church split off. Those jobs didn't always go in the state church to the most spiritually mature candidates. Uh, people could buy their way into one of those government-sponsored positions through influence, through connections, through promises about what you'll do when you get there, or through money. And to let someone into office that way would be to show partiality. And Paul says there's to be no partiality in the offices of a church. It's all about character. No partiality. Second directive, no hurry. No hurry, verses 22 to 25. It takes time to learn someone's character, to really know them well. Last week, we talked about situations you and I might encounter on the street where somebody comes up to us and presents a need and asks for money and gives us no time to check out whether their claims are accurate or not. Just hurry up and give me some money is the idea. And it should serve as a warning to us to proceed with caution in those situations. Fraud or a scam is probably not very far away. Same with choosing church leaders. If someone is being fast-tracked into leadership, that should serve as a warning sign for us. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, in the Wausau Church, 
when I was the senior pastor there, I invited a guy who was pretty new to the church to take part in our nine-month leadership development program. I had sized him up pretty quickly as elder material, and I wanted to fast-track him. And I am so glad I got to see him in action those nine months. His true character came out. It would have been a huge mistake to make him an elder. It's important to guard the leadership gate. Better to have a tough conversation up front and have someone mad at you than it is to deal with someone who shouldn't be in office and won't leave. Paul says, if you don't screen carefully, verse 22, your negligence makes you guilty of taking part in the sin of others. Some of those sins show up right away, he says in verse 24. Others take a little longer. Time will tell. So don't be in a hurry to put someone into office. No hurry. Haste may cause some things to be missed in the vetting of an elder. A a person's true character will come out in time. And verse 25 reminds us that the good beneath the service emerges over time as well. Leaders in the church are called to a very high standard. We are called to be under shepherds of the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd. We don't always measure up. As go the leaders, so goes the church. So guard the leadership gate carefully. Care for the leaders God has given you. Respect them in their work. Protect them from false accusation. Correct them when they go astray so that they will be faithful under shepherds and so that they will be rewarded when the chief shepherd appears. You'll find some uh, questions for further thought in your program. I hope that you'll make use of those throughout the week, perhaps in a small group setting or around your dinner table. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you again for how your word speaks freshly to us. I pray that we would take it to heart, that we would be people who are not just hearers of the word, but doers as well, that we would desire to glorify you by living out what your word says in our lives, that many will come to see you in our actions, and that we would always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, that we might be winsome witnesses for you, and that many would come to faith in you through the lives we lead and the words we share. In Jesus' name, amen.